0: All right, let's uh, open scriptures. You have your Bible open at Daniel 3. We just read Daniel 6 with the kids here in a different kind of fashion. This is the word of the Lord. It's about the image of gold and the fiery furnace. So, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisers, treasurers, judges, magistrates and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisers, treasurers, judges, magistrates and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. And therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, Lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O King, live forever. You have issued a decree, O King, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flutes, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of your province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up, Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Abednego. There are three different ways in which you can say that name. <laughs> and I'll repeat all three, three times here. <laughs> so these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn flutes zither." lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what god will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. And then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and and his attitudes towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furniture. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't it three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Chadrach! Meshach and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, came out of the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors and royal advisers crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who says anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Chadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the province of Babylon. You Thanks, Eric. Well, uh, this morning we're
1: actually doing something a bit adventurous. We're going to be looking at two chapters uh, of Daniel at the same time. Uh, we're going to be looking at that chapter that Eric just read, and we're also going to be thinking about that chapter that Rachel read for us uh, a little bit earlier from the Children's Story Bible. I thought it was so brave of Rachel to uh, to read for us. My, my greatest fear is reading uh, the story to my nieces uh, and nephew, uh, and so to read to one, if that's terrifying, to read to 20 uh, <laughs> young kids is just worst nightmare material, but... Uh, but that's such a wonderful uh, wonderful storybook, uh, isn't it? That Sally Lloyd-Jones one. Well, we're returning uh, to the book of Daniel this morning. We've had a couple of weeks off. Uh, and if you can't remember uh, what happened a few weeks ago, or if you haven't been here, uh, you're joining us here for the first time. Uh, Daniel is the account of, uh, of, of Daniel and his friends, who, along with a whole host of God's people, were taken captive and deported uh, to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. And much of the book of Daniel is about Daniel and his friends trying to remain faithful, trying to live for God while living under kings and governments who don't acknowledge God. That situation is remarkably similar to our own situation. Bar the kidnapping, I suppose, and the deportation that happened, but uh, (laughs) the the other similarities are there. One of the most extraordinary claims that the New Testament makes is that Jesus is king. It's one of the claims, in fact, that got Jesus into trouble. It's one of the claims that got Jesus' disciples into trouble. The problem is, you see, that there are human kings and human rulers as well. And sooner or later, the demands of human governments come into conflict with our love and our allegiance to Jesus. What's remarkable, I think, is that the Bible never calls for revolution. A few weeks ago, if you were here, you might remember that we looked at Daniel chapter 2 and we saw that kings and governments have been put in place by God. Even Nebuchadnezzar, who ransacked Jerusalem, even Nebuchadnezzar was put in place by God. And so we ought to obey those rulers insofar as we can. But what happens? What happens when those rulers and those governments overreach? What happens when they demand things of us that require us to deny Jesus? Well, that's what chapter 3 and chapter 6 of Daniel are about. They're both really about the same thing. Two different scenarios, but both about the same reality. The events of chapter 3 begin when Nebuchadnezzar builds that enormous statue. It's genuinely enormous. I don't know if you, if you were struck by the size. It's 90 feet high, 27 meters. Uh, it's about the, the height of a five-story building, uh, according to the Centre for, for uh, you know, Building Height and Urban Development that I looked up on the web. And uh, depending on the purpose for which the building is intended, it's about five stories uh, on average. That's what they said. It's also quite a narrow statue. It's a bit under three metres wide. So it's probably a bit more like an obelisk. You know, think of the Washington Monument, that great big thing sticking up in the air uh, just near uh, the Houses of Congress in America. It's maybe an obelisk with a statue on the top, a human figure. And this monument is covered in gold. Back in chapter 2, you might remember Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a statue, and the head was of gold. And it seems like maybe what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here is, is uh, you know, sort of making a monument to his own uh, glory. And if the statue isn't enough, whenever music plays, everybody needs to stop what they're doing and bow down and worship the statue. It's kind of like a reversed musical chairs. Except instead of when the music stops, it's when the music plays that everybody needs to bow down and worship. There's something quite comical and ridiculous about this whole situation. There's this long list of musical instruments repeated over and over again. Poor Eric had to read them. The horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes. It's a portable stage band for the king. You know, wherever he goes, there's this coterie of uh, of musicians, kind of playing on their little uh, pipes and zithers, strumming away behind the king. And there's this group of grovelling officials, officials with uh, with names in Aramaic at least, which rhyme. There's these titles which are repeated endlessly: the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates and all the other provincial officials you think of the king walking around with all these musicians kind of playing on their pipes and everything and then all the obsequious little governors and prefects kind of you know, prancing around behind yes king, whatever it is, you know, oh magnificent one the writer of Daniel wants us to realise how ridiculous this is and the idea itself is ridiculous, isn't it? Whenever the music plays, bow down and worship the statue. And yet all these esteemed officials can't get to their knees fast enough to do what Nebuchadnezzar wants. What's not comical, of course, is that it's a direct affront to God. God had said in Exodus chapter 20, he'd commanded his people, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything. In heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers, the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. God created the universe. How offensive to bow down to a pole covered in gold. Also not funny is the penalty for those who refuse to bow down. Whoever refused to bow down when the music played would be thrown into the blazing furnace. But Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are not put off by the threats of the king and they refuse to bow down and they refuse to worship. They're determined to obey God. Nebuchadnezzar in his grace and mercy and his kindness even comes and gives them a second chance at compromise. Isn't that thoughtful of him? He said originally that whoever doesn't bow down will be thrown immediately into the fire. And yet actually when it comes to the crunch, he says, no, perhaps I'll go and try and reason with them, threaten them again. But they refuse to recant. And they say those amazing words in uh, in verse 16. O Nebuchadnezzar, they say, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into this blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. The three friends refused to compromise. They remained committed to God. Well, that's the first danger, I think, that these two chapters show us about living in a, uh, under rulers who don't honour God. The first danger is the danger of compromise by sinning against God. The danger of compromise by sinning against God is an issue, I think, of profound importance at our present time. A few weeks ago, at a press conference in New York, Brian Houston, uh, the the senior pastor of Hillsong, Hillsong Global, uh, was asked the church's position on same sex marriage. His answer was vague. He talked about needing to have an ongoing conversation, and that the church leaders were on a journey with the issue. Now, a day later, Brian Houston clarified uh, the church's position that uh, they were against same-sex marriage and they believe that the Bible taught that. And while his initial answer is disturbing, you know, I think the more disturbing thing is, as I think about that, is that sooner or later someone is going to ask us those same questions. Sooner or later someone is going to ask me that question. And I wonder whether, in the heat of the moment, I'll be so eager to not be ostracised by society that I'll deny Jesus. It's a great temptation, isn't it? As our nation in the West as a whole slips further and further away from whatever Christian foundations we've had, these issues become more and more pronounced. In Victoria, doctors are compelled by law to give referrals to people who are seeking an, ab- an abortion. Schools are increasingly being told what they ought to teach and they are being told to teach things which are at odds with faith in Jesus Christ. These challenges are becoming more and more common and to be honest, I'm not sure that we're prepared for it. I'm not sure whether we're spiritually, emotionally, psychologically prepared for what it will cost to follow Jesus. What compromises will we be willing to make to our faith in Christ just to save our necks? Not even to save our necks, to save our reputations, our businesses, our homes, our livelihoods, our way of life. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego refused to compromise by sinning against God. Well, that's the message of chapter 3. And although the uh, situation in chapter 6 is very similar, it's also a little bit different. Uh, in chapter 3, the plot was the king's doing. In chapter 6, the plot is the brainchild of the jealous officials. They want to trap Daniel uh, so they can get his job. Uh, to would be helpful just to read a little bit of, uh, of chapter 6. We'll just read a few verses just to get the picture Uh, Chapter 6, verse 6. So this is the plot. So the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. So here's the deal. For 30 days, Daniel has to either pray to the king or pray to no one. And the penalty for failing to comply is being thrown into the lion's den. And what's Daniel's response? Daniel's response is to go home, go upstairs with the window open and pray to God as he'd always done. Although the two stories in chapter 3 and chapter 6 are very similar, there's one important difference, I think. And the difference is, in chapter 3, there was really no way of not offending the king. There was no way of getting out of it. When the music played, they had to bow down to the image. And if they they wanted to honour God, they couldn't do that. But in chapter 6... Daniel could much more easily, I think, have escaped the king's plan or the the plan of the officials. All he had to do was not pray for a month. So he had an option, didn't he? If he prayed, he had to pray to the king, but he could not pray. A month isn't really a massively long time after all, is it? He could have saved himself a lot of trouble by just not praying for a month. But Daniel doesn't want to have any of it. He goes home and he does what he's always done. He prays to the God that he loves. You see, there are two ways, I think, of compromising under rulers who don't honour God. If the first danger of living under those rulers is that we dishonour God by sinning against God, the second danger is compromised by failing to do what God has commanded. In one case we go against God, in one case we, we fail to do what he's told us to do. And I suspect that the second sin is the subtler sin. One wonders if a time will come when we might be challenged not to pray. I suspect that some of us would think about 30 days without praying and we go, yeah, I could do that. I could do 30 days of not praying. If that would save me from the lion's den. That's a tempting proposition. It's easier for us, of course, to hide our prayer than it was for Daniel but there may become a time there may come a time when we'll be challenged to hide our trust in Jesus to hide it away in a closet or maybe a time will come when we will be challenged not to meet publicly not to be seen to be Christians in public but in many ways those things are already the case for people now aren't they there are Christians already who are ashamed to be seen to be Christians. And there are people already who are giving up meeting publicly with God's people. One of the dangers of Daniel 3 and 6, I think, is that we get so caught up in the big compromises of those chapters that we fail to see the small compromises that actually face us every day. We think to ourselves... Well, when someone tells me to bow down to a great obelisk with a statue of a human covered in gold on top, when someone tells me to do that, I won't compromise. And when someone tells me to pray to another god, I won't do it. And we think to ourselves, aren't I so robust in my faith? And yet the reality is the smaller compromises that happen every day we don't even see. Already, people attempted not to pray. And by what? By threats of death? No. By distractions. Already, people attempted to remain silent in their faith. And as has been said, not by a raised fist, but by a raised eyebrow. Already, people attempted not to meet together with the church, with the body of Christ with the people of God. And by what? Violent floggings? No, by better offers. Sleeping. A day out with friends. Time to get things done around the house. If our life isn't threatened, you see, we don't see the challenge. And yet it's there for us every day. And here's the great tragedy, I think. The great tragedy is that those small, unnoticed compromises are actually training us for big compromises further down the track. We sow a thought and reap a deed. We sow a deed and reap a habit. We sow a habit and reap a character. We sow a character and reap a destiny. as I think about what challenges the future might hold for us as Christians in Australia, I'm deeply concerned. Very concerned, in fact. Not so much about what the future may hold. If that comes, so be it. If we're thrown into prison for believing in Christ, well, that's what happens. What concerns me is not that that will happen, but that the training and practice that people are putting in now doesn't bode well for the future. When I used to play footy, they used to say, you train how you play. Well, how are we playing today? How are we training for the future? And I think the reality is it doesn't bode well, actually. The flip side of that is that if small compromises train us for big compromises... The flip side is that small faithfulness trains us for big faithfulness. What a great training program! To train every day for big faithfulness in the future by trying hard to be faithful in small things today, to be better equipped for the future by asking at every moment of the day, well, how can I be faithful to God in this small thing? How can I be faithful to God in the way I relate to the people around me? Now, Daniel 3 and 6 present us with two dangers of living under rulers who don't honour God. They're the dangers of compromise. Compromise by sinning against God and compromise by failing to do what God has commanded well, what was the secret to their trust? The secret to the trust of these four faithful men. The answer uh, is actually very simple. They trusted God. That was the secret to their, to their faithfulness. They trusted God. They weren't great people. They weren't powerful people. They weren't people of strong resolve. They were people of deep and simple trust in God. There's that beautiful statement in uh, Daniel chapter 6 verse 23. It says, and when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. So too in chapter 3, those three friends had displayed that incredible trust. Not simply trust, I might say, that God would rescue them from the fiery furnace. They didn't know. They said, well, if God saves us, great. If he doesn't, so be it. Either way, they weren't going to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. They knew that ultimately God would do right. Their faithfulness flowed from trust, just as compromise inevitably flows from unbelief. If you believe that God's ways are better than other ways, then you'll follow Jesus, even when everybody else is going a different direction. If you believe that God's foolishness is wiser than man's wisdom... Then you'll listen to God's words in the Bible, even when they seem wildly, you know, living that way seems wildly improbable. If you believe that knowing Jesus is the most powerful thing, uh, most wonderful thing in the world, then you'll go to great pains and take on great sacrifices in order to follow Jesus because it's worth it. If you believe that Jesus will raise his people from the dead, then someone can hold a gun to your head and you won't care. You won't deny the faith. You'd still love Jesus. Hebrews 11 uh, is a chapter full of stories about people who believed God and refused to compromise. And actually it picks up on that, this story, these two stories uh, of Daniel and his three friends. In verse 33 of Hebrews 11 we're told about people who, through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, Gained what was promised. Who shut the mouths of lions and quenched the fury of the flames. Who escaped the edge of the sword and whose weakness was turned to strength. How did they conquer? Not through, uh, through revolution. Not through personal giftedness. Not through resolve. They conquered through faith. Through faith in God's promised Messiah, Jesus. What's striking in Hebrews 11 is that it's not all a pretty picture of deliverance. Hebrews tells us about others too, people like Moses, who chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasure of sin for a short time. He considered reproach for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasure of Egypt. Imagine that. Imagine, Imagine that you had all you could ever want, all the power and the prestige, all the human freedom. And Moses gave it up. He refused to compromise. And for what? To wander in a desert for 40 years and never set foot in the promised land. Why did he do it? Because he believed the promise of God about Jesus. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. Why did they do it? because they believe God. God said, trust me. And they did. That was their secret. was to trust God. And you know, more than anything else, that's what this chapter is about. Not even about their faith, but about the fact that God is a God who can be trusted. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego thrown into a fire, and God delivered them. The furnace was so hot that the soldiers around them were killed, but they came out without a hair singed, their robes intact, and not even smelling of fire. Daniel, thrown into the lion's den, the most dangerous sleepover imaginable. He spent a whole night with the lions, and yet the moment that those other men were thrown in afterwards... They didn't even reach the ground before they were devoured by the lions. God can be trusted. Of course he can be trusted. Notice that God's deliverance was not so complete that they never went into the furnace and they never went into the lion's den. God's deliverance isn't a guarantee guarantee that we won't be mistreated with the people of God, like Moses. But God's deliverance is a guarantee that on the other side of the furnace and on the other side of the lion's den and on the other side of the 40 years of wilderness wandering, God will vindicate his people. God will save his people. God will raise his people up. We see that most acutely, I think, in the cross. Jesus was faithful, and yet he was slain, dead, but vindicated by God and raised to life. And everyone who trusts in Jesus, though we may perish, through Jesus will be raised to life and vindicated as well. Well, there's a great vision in Revelation chapter 7 of precisely that reality. It's a vision of the last day that John sees, when Jesus will return. And there's a vast multitude that no one can count. And he wants to know who they are, who are all these people. And one of the elders there replies, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What's the greatest obstacle to living for God while we wait for our King from heaven? What's the greatest obstacle to faithful living? It's failing to trust Jesus. But Daniel 3 and Daniel 6 remind us that God is trustworthy and will do as He's promised. The Lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your trustworthiness We thank you that what you have promised, you will do. We thank you that what you have promised, you have the power to do. Lord, as we face an uncertain future, as we face the prospect of difficult times as we face the prospect of increased opportunity for compromise as we face the prospect that people that have walked the road together with us will deny the faith as we walk that road as we face those prospects father help us to remember that you are a faithful god And whatever the threats, and whatever the temptations, and whatever the realities that we might face, that you are a God of great and powerful deliverance, a God of very great and precious promises, a God who raises the dead to life again, a God who shepherds his people a God who will wipe away every tear from our eye. And Lord, if it be for us that some of us should face furnaces of one type or another, lions' dens, Lord, we ask that you would grant us the strength, the trust, the faith in Jesus Christ, to be faithful to the very end. We ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen.